Hello, and welcome to the Human Instrumentality Podcast, your guided deep dive into the seminal animated series, Neon Genesis Evangelion. I'm Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. In this episode, we will cover the first two episodes of the show itself, Angel Attack and Unfamiliar Series. If you've never read about the production of the show, or if you've never listened to this podcast before, we do recommend that you listen to the previous unit first. Also, in this episode, Ian and I are assuming that you've already watched the first two episodes of the series before. And we're also operating under the assumption that you have not seen the rest. So even if you have seen the entire series, we will not be going into the material for the rest of the show. But for now, Human Instrumentality Podcast Unit 1, launch! So the first episode of Neon Genesis Evangelion, entitled Angel Attack, begins, unsurprisingly, with an angel attack. Uh, The first few minutes of the episode don't even introduce any of the main characters, even though most of the main characters do appear in the first few episodes. Instead, you get sort of a giant monster pastiche. The third angel, which appears as this big green giant... Uh, appears off the coast of Japan and just starts blowing up uh, UN military gunships, etc. And then once the tone is set, once the action begins, then we're introduced to the first two main characters, Misato Katsuragi and Shinji Ikari. And so what I love about this opening is that we immediately set the stakes, you set the amount of intensity that the angel attack is going to provide, and then you put this teenage kid, Shinji Ikari, right in harm's way. He's waiting for Masato to pick him up at, you know, some street corner. Basically, he's been dropped off into the middle of Tokyo 3, and suddenly the angel attacks. There's violence everywhere. Masato pulls up in a car, immediately picks him up, and we're off. It's a great introduction. So then we're off to Nerve HQ which is where Shinji is been summoned by his father, Gendo Ikari, for, at this point, unknown reasons. That's correct. The series begins in medias res and doesn't give you a lot of context. So you're sort of flying by the seat of your pants here. But the world building is, is really fast. You see some pretty standard Japanese monster movie tropes. The military is not effective against the third angel. And they use something that's called an N2 mine to try and blow it up. They don't manage to kill the angel at all, but they do manage to slow it down. And while it's slowed down, uh, Misato manages to take Shinji to his father inside of Nerve headquarters. There, basically, Shinji is presented with a choice. He can either do nothing or he can pilot this mysterious giant robot that they have waiting for him. Uh, They don't explain why, but they do say that Shinji's basically the only person who can use this, what seems at this point to be a war machine. It's important to note, however, that he's technically not the only person who can use it. As part of the bargaining chip to get Shinji into the robot, Gendo Ikari leverages another Ava pilot, Rei Ayanami, who is in really bad shape when we first meet her, covered in bandages, bloodied, battered up. She's in no actual state to get into a war machine and battle what appears to be an unstoppable monster raging through the city above them. So Gendo is essentially forcing Shinji's hand and saying, if you don't act, she'll have to and she'll die. So Shinji is kind of in a bit of a moral bind. So he says, fuck it, okay, fine, I'll do it, I'll get in the robot. At this point, it's not only his father that's pressuring him, but Masato, as well as another high-ranking nerve officer, Ritsuko Akagi. So with all of these adults bearing down on him and with the prospect of another teenager his age possibly being killed if he doesn't act, Shinji acquiesces and gets in the robot. There's a huge swell of dramatic music, and he's launched up to face the angel. And at that point, it cuts. The first episode ends without you actually seeing any combat between Evangelion Unit 1 with Shinji inside of it and the third angel. And at this point in time, I think the first episode is a pretty standard example of what an opening episode for this kind of science fiction television show is like. 
Uh, it follows a lot of the standard beats. What's interesting is that the second episode, Unfamiliar Ceilings, shows some of the fight scene that you've been waiting for, and then pretty quickly executes a time jump and cuts to what seems like a day or two days after the fight. They don't show it to you right away. And doing so is very important because you don't just get to see the fight, but this fight goes very, very badly as much as we see of it. Shinji is knocked on his ass immediately by the angel and is in really dire circumstances. He's barely able to make the Ava walk and he's pretty much at the mercy of this monster that to this point, no one knows how to actually stop. So this sudden jump into the future immediately sets this intense disorienting feeling for the rest of the episode. We don't know what happened yet. That's right. And it actually prioritizes character development over action, even though the action is really well executed and stylish and fun to watch. And and that's going to be a theme that the series continues with. So rather than showing you the fight scene, you get some time with Shinji recovering from the fight. You know that he's been victorious, which is interesting because they they undercut what you think would be the primary dramatic tension immediately. And instead, the episode becomes about the dramatic question of where Shinji is going to live if he's going to continue piloting the giant robot. Initially, the plan, as far as Masato knows, is that Shinji is going to be staying with Gendo. Gendo and Shinji immediately make clear that this is not how things are going to go down. They have a terrible relationship. It is a very dysfunctional family that he uh, that Shinji and Gendo are a part of. So faced with the opportunity of either leaving Shinji to live on his own, isolated and with no companionship whatsoever, Masato says, actually, Shinji can come live with me. Now, this is somewhat unprofessional considering the age gap and the sort of uh, flirty tone that the two of them have had in the first episode. Uh, Ritsuko, of course, chews Masato out about this, but ultimately you can tell pretty quickly that Masato is doing it out of genuine affection for Shinji. So Shinji moves into Masato's apartment. Uh, some very light hijinks ensue. We learn a lot about Misato. We learn that she basically survives on junk food and is a somehow very functional alcoholic. Incidentally, that's a subtext that was lost on me when I was first watching the television series. But now watching it as an adult, I, I, I seem like, oh, the kid's primary caregiver has like a debilitating alcohol addiction and they play it for laughs. Anyway, after some of these hijinks ensue and you get to know Shinji and Misato better, Shinji goes to sleep for the first time in his new bedroom and then as he's falling asleep, has a flashback. And that's when you finally get to see the third angel versus Evangelion unit one fight scene that at this point, two episodes have been building up toward. We cut back immediately to the point where Shinji is on the ropes against the angel. He's getting pounded. His arm is broken in half. There is a beam coming out of Sakiel's arm, pounding against the front of his skull or the skull of the Ava. But of course, given that the all of the pain that is inflicted upon the robot is also inflicted upon him, he's feeling every bit of it, screaming his lungs off in the in the way that only Shinji Akari can. And right when things seem to be at the bleakest point, the Ava suddenly wakes up, it seems, eyes wide open and has this burst of energy, charges the angel, rips apart its AT field. We'll get into that soon. And basically beats it into submission, cracks both of its arms, and right when it's ready to strike the killing blow, the angel taps out and ignites itself into a giant cross-like explosion. At this point, the Ava is brought back down to Nerve HQ. Shinji is pulled out of the robot and is looking at it separately. He's still in the pod that allows him to take control of the Ava, but now outside of it, he's able to see what the Ava actually looks like. And instead of it just being a robot, it's this weird, fleshy, gory creature. And in the last moments of the episode, it opens an eye and Shinji screams. And that's it. That's the first two episodes. A lot of world building very quickly 
in both of these as a as an adult looking back on it like the thing that stands out to me the most about these two episodes is how economical the the storytelling is it delivers the information really really quickly um which is important because there's a ton to digest it's not just quickly but it also does it effectively um the thing that i i'm also struck by watching it again as an adult is that the show doesn't ever seem to pause to explain things, especially in the first episode. It's constantly moving you toward the destination. Even if Shinji doesn't know that he's ultimately being ferried into Nerve HQ in order to pilot uh, the Ava, the episode has this momentum where he's picked up already under attack. Once he appears to be safe, the N2 mine goes off, which immediately teaches you about the AT field and teaches you why... The, the military has no power in this universe. It immediately sets up the stakes that the only real solution is going to have to come out of something unconventional, something outside of the world of the known. And then we arrive to Nerve HQ, we see the Geodome as Misato carries him down. And this is a point where the plot sort of stops so that Misato and Shinji can have a conversation about his relationship with his father. But at that same time, you're seeing the scope of the world. Everything is really efficient. It's never just leaving you to do one thing at a time. Every step along the way, the show is telling you multiple pieces of information and hoping that you can keep up. Before we go into why that strategy works and also why the second episode is is so willing to invert that, uh, I think maybe we should talk about some of the context of the episode. Because as an adult, looking back on it, there's some some interesting socio-political uh, aspects to the TV series that weren't readily apparent to me when I was a teenager watching it for the first time. One of the first things we learn about the world of Ava is that it is, by all appearances, relatively post-apocalyptic by our current standards. Uh, the opening shots show what appears to be a city underwater, destroyed. There's the sound of cicadas. There's the sense of heat in the in both episodes really you get the sense that it's almost this like eternal summer kind of feeling there's clearly been a great deal of change society is not functioning in a normal way and that already kind of puts us into this much more at least in my mind looking viewing it in the present and immediately brings to mind like a sort of post climate change version of the world do you feel the same way i do I, well you know, for context behind us recording this, because I don't know when whoever is listening, this is going to be listening to it. As we're recording this episode right now, there's just been a tremendous climate change protest internationally. And and that may be coloring some of the reading on my part. But at the same time, like the imagery of the sunken city does seem remarkably prescient to me. I was just going to say, consider that this series is coming out in the 90s, in Bill Clinton's 90s, in, uh, you know, by all accounts, like the golden era of pro-capitalist neoliberalism. No climate change policy was being passed almost anywhere when this series was made and no one cared about it. It's also worth noting that while Japan had gone through this huge economic boom in the 80s, um, and I think in a lot of ways that sort of set up a lot of the the rise of the mecha genre that we discussed in the previous episode. By the time that Ava is coming out, Japan is sort of in the middle of an economic downturn and it is in a much more uh, volatile state than it had been in the previous decade. And that's going to be something that we're going to have to keep in mind during the course of the entire show. It actually will end up affecting the production of the show at one point in a really fascinating way. But that's just something to keep in mind is that there's a sense of anxiety and uncertainty in the national consciousness as Ava is coming out. However, I will say this, it's, we call the show post-apocalyptic, but it's a remarkably functional post-apocalypse. Uh, the trains are moving on time. Uh, a new city has been built. The capital of Japan has been rebuilt now twice uh, they do a bad job of explaining this, but in the context of the world, Tokyo 1, the Tokyo we know is underwater. They've built a Tokyo 2 that's meant to serve as a decoy, and the main action of the series takes place in Tokyo 3, which is the actual quote-unquote functioning capital of the country. 
<laughs> which doesn't exactly make doesn't exactly hold up to logical scrutiny. I think it it was more just like an interesting bit of back of the napkin world building, but it's kind of fun. One thing that that does sort of hint at that I really enjoy about the series is this the degree to which it's clear that Nerve is operating sort of out of public scrutiny to some extent. Nerve is literally underground. It is inside what is referred to in the show as a geodome, where it essentially houses the Nerve HQ as well as this kind of like a very lush campus. Like it's pretty incredible grounds that they have to themselves. And in the second episode, in one, probably one of my favorite sequences that doesn't really have a ton of plot significance, but it's just this really beautiful, powerful moment, is as Masato is driving Shinji to her apartment, she stops to show Shinji the buildings of, of Tokyo rising up out of the ground as the sun is setting. And you see, you know, it has this like beautiful horn fanfare and the light is shining off the skyscrapers. To me, like the significance of that moment, it's actually very much to your point about how functional of a post-apocalyptic society it is. Because Masato is trying to show Shinji, this is what you saved. This is what you protected by fighting the angel. And she's trying to impress upon him a, an optimism about humanity that is, I think, central to her character and is kind of what makes her different than a lot of the other characters at Nerf. I've got so much to talk about, about the way that Misato functions in the series as a foil to almost every other character, and, and, and some of that's by design. Uh, but to me, when I look at the shot of the sequence of Tokyo 3 rising out of the ground, um, its main skyscrapers, I see that as sort of um, almost a rare moment of escapist fantasy from the show about there there even being the conception of that a new city uh, a metropolis could sort of sprout in 10 minutes or or sprout overnight is uh in a sense a very japanese dream because some scholars have said that that japan is the only post-apocalyptic society that currently exists in the world. I don't agree with that assessment entirely because I, I you know, you think about things like um, the Mongol hordes, uh, Genghis Khan invading uh, Iraq in, in thousands of years ago um, or, or various other collapses of empires. Uh, yeah. We can go to an even more recent example. Like think about like Ukraine after Chernobyl. Like if, if you're going to describe post-apocalyptic scenarios, there are places in the world that have gone through serious calamities, but I think you're right to point to the idea of Japan's uh, post-nuclear life as being uh, unique in the in a global society. And and that neurosis about being the survivor of of a nuclear weapon attack is a huge part, not only of the series but particularly these two episodes. It, it's so, they cover it so much in these two episodes that it's almost like Hideki Anno had to like get it all out of his system in order to tell the rest of this story. Like he's like, all right, let's un unburden all this national trauma right at the beginning. And it's kind of fascinating that even within that context, he explicitly makes it like the nuclear bomb equivalent is not nuclear. Like the, the N2 mines are supposed to have like essentially the power of nuclear weapons, but almost as if he's shying away from how horrifying that is in the like Japanese uh, national psyche. It's not actually technically a nuclear bomb. That's right. When talking about the the shadow of, of nuclear war on Japanese pop culture, it's obviously like a, a tremendous part of their animated tradition. But I think it's also important right now to maybe talk about the fact that these first two episodes function to an extent as an homage or pastiche to kaiju movies, specifically like the original Godzilla is a is a huge influence on the first two episodes, which is funny because Hideki Anno did go on to direct a Godzilla movie, live action, and Satchiel the Third Angel, in in some ways is almost like a caricature of Godzilla. He's green, even though Godzilla isn't technically green. Godzilla's gray but he's a big green monster with an energy blast and kind of bony spikes coming out of him uh but there's an element of humor to satchel that isn't present 
intentionally in in Godzilla. You know, people could derisively say that uh, all the monsters in Godzilla movies look like men in rubber suits, whereas Satchiel is like so humanoid, especially in the shots of his feet, that he literally looks like a big person in a green jumpsuit sometimes i i i think something about these two episodes is is a love letter to godzilla movies but also sort of poking at them in an interesting way right it's such an interesting way to start it off by making the monster actually appear more humanoid than you would expect early on and it almost gives it this unthreatening look in a way. I mean, obviously it's a threatening creature, but because it's so recognizably humanoid, you're kind of caught off balance by what it's capable of doing. Whereas you you see Godzilla or I'm not the same kind of kaiju expert as you are, but I'm sure you can bring up all these examples of they're clearly monstrous. They're more animal-like than humanoid. That's right. And so you can kind of register immediately, oh, that's a threat. Whereas Ava immediately puts you onto the wrong foot and kind of leaves it to be like, what exactly is that? What is it capable of? What is it trying to do? What is it? What does it want? Most of the angels in the course of the series are, I think, very well designed with some exceptions to that rule, which I'm going to be vocal about when we get to those episodes. There's there's a couple angels whose whose designs I absolutely hate and they tend to be in the weaker episodes. But I think Satchel is just a, a perfect example of of creature design in the sense that um, while it's off-putting in a way that the series will expand on later, it's also sort of an emotive animal. It, it, like it, its face is a mask, but in a few shots, you see that the eyes on the mask dilate, uh, and. Satchel has sort of like a personality like it seems almost like a big curious toddler more so than something that's like overtly maleficent. I totally see where you're coming from. It sort of cocks its head at the Ava a few times. Right. And there's a sense when it starts uh, attacking Shinji that it's that the violence in the second episode, once the fight scene really gets started, is shocking in part because you don't expect it to act with such brutality, because almost because it's so humanoid. That's and right. so to see it like, you know, treat Shinji like a rag doll, it is like it's playing with a toy. Exactly. And that works into the themes of the series as well. Uh, this is a show that's pr- very interested in the idea of maturity. What is the definition of maturity? What really is the dividing line between childhood and adulthood? And and the angels and the Evangelions too, at times sort of exist to interrogate or confound that binary. And And the third angel is a good example of that. And just as an example of how that same theme also plays out on the human scale, uh, these episodes set up basically three levels of the characters. You have the teens. In these two episodes, you meet Shinji and you meet Rei, who are the, the two Ava pilots that we know so far. You have the adults that kind of directly interact with the kids, namely Misato and Ritsuko. And then in the highest level, you have Gendo. Uh, you're forgetting someone though i don't think we if we're going to talk about the cast i don't think we can ignore uh the mascot character pen pen the hot spring penguin i've got so many questions about pen pen (laughs) i i can go off on pen pen so pen pen is essentially masato's roommate like it's clear that pen 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 lives with masato has his own room in the refrigerator and kind of acts of his own volition. He's clearly more intelligent than your average penguin, you know, takes his showers by himself. So I just like, does Pen Pen have a job? How intelligent is Pen Pen? Like, how is he helping pay rent? Like, what's his deal? Well, Pen Pen <laughs> comes from a long line of these series needing uh, what they call mascot characters. Uh, this idea that like every anime at the time needed some sort of animal that could be merchandised into cute accoutrement for teenage girls to be sold. It's my understanding that Evangelion was conceived without a mascot character. And at some point someone said, you know, we need to have a cute little animal in it. And for some reason they decide on uh, a penguin 
with the personality of a grumpy 40-year-old man. The funny thing, though, is that even though Pen Pen is mostly played for laughs, like in the second episode, his introduction into the show kind of sets up this like almost Austin Powers kind of like dick joke with Shinji attempting to take a shower and then being stunned by Pen Pen and having his genitals blocked by a series of uh, increasingly smaller cans. <laughs> Beer cans. Pen Pen is sort of a source of humor, but even the idea of like a hot water penguin kind of sets up this like really weird environmentalist context where like I guess there's just no cold water anymore Pe like the only penguins that are left are ones that exist in hot water I don't think they explain this in dialogue at least they don't in the first two episodes but I, I happen to have uh Yoshiyuki Sadamoto by the way Yoshiyuki Sadamoto is the character designer of this show and he had a lot of creative control of the show um I have some of his art books uh, and in the art books, they have reproductions of the original sketches for many of the characters, including Pen Pen. And he makes a note that you'll sometimes see Pen Pen wearing what looks like a metal vest. And it's a mobile uh, battery operated refrigerator pack to keep him cold. And so I think I think the purpose of Pen Pen and particularly Pen Pen living with Misato is to set up backstory about Misato that we're going to find out later. Uh, she has some emotional ties to the Arctic, uh, but also that she's sort of this person who is a, an innate caregiver to lost things. And so like Pen Pen has no environment to live in anymore. And Misato's taken him on to take care of him in the same way that she does that to Shinji. And so in a weird way, Pen Pen's like an avatar for Shinji's lack of a home. That's a really good point about comparing those two characters. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I also like that you're, I'd like to use that as a sort of a jumping off point to talk about the, the, the adult characters that we yep. meet in this episode, because as you've been pointing out, we're learning a lot about Masato. Our introduction to Masato is, is really strange by today's standards. Like the first thing that we see of her is basically this like cheesecake picture that she's sent to Shinji as sort of like, here's who I am, but with like an arrow pointed to her cleavage. Right. And the episode plays around a lot with like hypersexual images of her that I, it's one, it's a sign of the genre, it's a sign of the times, but I think it also sets up that we're following along with Shinji as the main character and Shinji as a uh, teenage boy is just going to be experiencing a lot of sexual feelings throughout the entire show. And it's going to be confusing and it's going to be kind of messy. But I also know that that particular side of things probably is not going to rub everyone the right way. Yeah, as an adult, it's interesting. So... Misato's roughly 14 or 15 years, 14 years, 14 years older than Shinji is. And I'm now probably 15 or 14 years older than I was when I first saw this show. And when I was young, the the inappropriate sexual tension between Misato and Shinji and that it's played for laughs both made relatively little impact on me. And now as an adult, I look back on it and personally, I, I read it as like a choice that perhaps has not aged well. We'll get more into it as it goes on, um, because I think that in these episodes, it absolutely is entirely about humor. But what I love about this show, and as, as we'll talk about endlessly as we get into further episodes, things that are played tonally one way will quickly be replayed in another way for a different tone. That's right. Um, but it also is, it sets up Masato as, you know, she's clearly good at her job, if somewhat of a maverick. You know, she's op operating outside of the necessary strictures of nerve policy by, you know, hijacking car batteries and whatnot. And you get the sense that she's, she's not a fuck up, but she is definitely in I think a very relatable way now that I'm basically about her age, I see a lot of people that are young professionals that are also kind of not yet entirely grown up. You know, she's a total mess at home. She's a slob. She drinks a ton, even compared to uh, Ritzko. And the, the contrast between those two, especially, I think is like a really great way of sort of establishing both of them. It's like their meeting and their conversations sort of sets up Misato as um, run and gun, solve problems as they come up, uh, very improvisational, very emotionally attuned to Shinji, 
Whereas Ritsko is uh, very cold and very unconcerned with people's personal space. And it's just sort of system oriented. You know, it's a very much a right brain, left brain kind of split. With those there's two. even a shot in the show. And I didn't notice this on the first time, but there's a shot that you see Shinji in the middle. Ritsuko on one side, Misato in the other. And he's silent. And Ritsuko and Misato are basically giving him a list of pros and cons for getting in Evangelion Unit 1. Um, they're literally his shoulder angels. It's mm-hmm. sort of funny to me some some research about misato yielded some interesting things i i I tried to do some reading on her as a character because when i rewatched these episodes i was taken aback at just how much time and attention she's given but she was originally hideki ano's favorite character like early on when he conceived the series misato was part of it and he had a lot emotionally invested in her as a character and you see that in these episodes and you're going to see it more later. Whereas Yoshiyuki Sadamoto, the character designer, doesn't like her hmm. and s- sort of sees her as a boring character trope. And you get the sense that he maybe like over sexualized her visually in a sense to give himself something interesting in regards to the character. Uh, or at least that's sort of hinted at in an interview I read, which is a strange strange stance to take he's a strange guy (laughs) now having read several interviews with yeah that does not necessarily surprise me (laughs) oh man both of those things actually make a ton of sense to me like i i sort of think like misato is almost like secretly the main character of the show or you could really look at the show from the angle of her being sort of the uh the driver of a lot of the action that's right because Shinji, like going back to that that very shot that you're talking about not only is that shot establishing the pros and cons of getting into the eva but it's literally from a child's perspective right they tower over shinji it, it's showing how little power he has as a decision maker as a an agent really in the show he doesn't have any power and it's a bunch of adults who are kind of controlling how much he's capable of doing and, and deciding what he's going to do for him. You know, like one of the things that's like just so dark about these two episodes, despite the sort of gung ho tone is it's a bunch of adults serving up children to fight monsters. It's really dark. And that, and that dovetails with the violence to a tremendous amount. And, and it's interesting because at times in the series, visually in the first few episodes misato at times will be an agent of nerve and gendo very much gendo's creature and at other times she's more like shinji more like a teenager than she is like the other adults she's the bridge between the two generations in a sense um and I have a very specific example of that. So there's a there's a scene where Misato is going to a convenience store with Shinji to get all this cheap beer and microwaved food to eat with him later. And you, the only two characters whose faces you see are her and Shinji. And it's like an homage to Charlie Brown. You get the voice of the cashier from off screen as if the cashier is an adult. Mm-hmm. And you only get to see the reactions of the kids. And I thought that was such an interesting way to frame those two characters and to bring her and Shinji closer together. And it's important to establish that they're close together because the other, what you would imagine to be the central familial relationship in the show is ice fucking cold. So we should talk about Gendo as well, because holy shit, is that guy a piece of work already in like the first two episodes all we see of gendo talking about the the shot of you know uh misato and ritsuko towering over shinji gendo is in a whole other room several like stories above shinji looming down upon him kind of like set up in the shot to be like above the eva even it's this like voice of god that is like coming down upon shinji and demanding something that's exactly right and the show is immediately letting you know that this is not a standard family relationship and you're gonna have to just 
deal with how uncomfortable it is between them at all times. In a lot of ways, now as an adult, I see I see Gendo as the show's primary antagonist, which is funny because he's ostensibly trying to save mankind uh, or trying to ensure the future of humanity. He says a few uh, lines like that. He's like, uh, nerve is the only potential future humanity has left, something along those lines. But he's he's cold. He's un he's untouchable. You know, there's uh, a really well animated scene where Unit One moves on its own and uh, blocks a piece of flying debris that's been lodged loose by Satchel attacking from above. Um, and a piece of debris flies at Gendo, and you think it's going to hit him, and it shatters against a bullet proof plexiglass screen that's separating him from the other characters that up until that point the the show's made absolutely no effort to show you that it exists yeah that's a really good point it's it's sort of shocking and he doesn't flinch it's like uh there's that famous clip i'm sorry i'm gonna use a basketball analogy of matt barnes faking the ball out in front of kobe's face and kobe doesn't move at all that's basically Gendo in this scene. The beam just bounces off and Gendo doesn't move an inch. Now, maybe that was a animation budgetary decision, but it absolutely has an effect on your understanding of the character. He knows that he's untouchable in that situation and he's unflappable. He's a very driven, very driven character that doesn't even seem to really care about himself all that much, only his goal. So many times in the series, and they introduce it really quickly, I actually think it's the stance he's in where you first meet him, but he sort of has an iconic way of sitting. Um, He's hunched over at a desk, and he has his fingers crossed uh, and his arms concealing his mouth. And so you usually only ever see he's sort of like uh, like Kilroy from Vietnam. Like you you see hanging above this like flat plane <laughs> of his of his hands, just his nose and his eyes. Uh, and then later in the episode, they'll give you a shot from under his interlaced fingers. And you can see that he's only capable of emoting. And the only emotion he shows is a smirk, but he only emotes like with his mouth. And so, like, he only sits in such a way that is to make him seem completely without feeling intentionally. And, like, the show communicates all of that without anyone remarking on it. Yes. Yeah. The show, that's another uh, example of the what I was talking about earlier with the amount that the reason the show is really, really good, even in the early stages, is the amount it's able to convey in very small gestures and how much it's able to do with blocking, with how a character is standing, how they are presenting themselves, how they're framed within the shot. It tells you so much about how the characters project themselves into the world. I also, I do want to bring up another thing because I I think I didn't even realize this until you discussed the, the plane of glass, but that actually is a perfect mirror to all of the stuff with the AT fields in the episode. Right. So... After the the N2 mine is dropped on the angel, we have this uh, sort of expositional piece as the angel is recovering about its AT field. And they don't break down what that uh, AT stands for yet, and they won't really get into explaining all of the technical details of it. But for now, what we need to know as viewers of the show is that an AT field is a force field that the angels, and at this point, is it clear that the AVA also has its own AT field. They do say that specifically in the dialogue. So that's the reasoning for why they create the Evangelion, because there needs to be a reasoning for why you made a giant robot and spent billions and billions of dollars on it. Right. And the idea behind the show is that only an Evangelion can also generate one of these force fields. And when an angel's force field and Evangelion's force field meet, they cancel one another out. And while that has its plot functionality there is a lot of metaphoric significance to the at field Um, and it's important to to put a pin in that right now so that you can continue to watch the show with that in mind the at field is a barrier between one life form and another it is a wall it is a separation and that same idea of separation between individuals 
is fundamental to how the show is going to work. That is going to be a recurring theme over and over and it, over again. A thing to watch for later, uh, and we'll cover this in the next episode. But if you're if you're when you watch the next two episodes before listening to the next episode of this podcast, uh, the show actually will like lay out a cited thesis statement for its philosophical stance in involving the AT field very overtly. I've never seen anything like that in fiction before, but we can get to that in a future episode, but keep an eye out for that. This is another deep, deeply planted seed that I just want to lay out in this, uh, in this episode. There is a shot after Ray is knocked loose from a bed that she's wheeled in on after the, you know, Ava has protected Shinji and moved of its own accord, where Shinji attempting to help Ray up finds his hand covered in blood. And there's a really, really conspicuous shot of his hand. And I'm not going to explain why that's important, but just file that one away. But that's also a great way to bring up Ray. And I know that you probably want to discuss Ray since she's crucial it's, to the show. <laughs> I have so many, I have a lot of mixed feelings about Ray. So like listeners who aren't aware of maybe like the fan furor around this TV series, Ray is far and away the most popular character in the show. Uh, I think a lot of that has to do with the character's design. She's got this really distinctive blue haircut, uh, and she's very well color-coordinated in a way that only one other character is, and keep that in mind for later. Um, Rei is Yoshiki Sadamoto's favorite character, uh, and what's interesting is he originally conceived of her covered in bandages which is the way that you first see her in this in these two episodes you only ever see her with the bandages on and i guess he originally conceived of her as being someone who is chronically wounded constantly right and that kind of already sets up all that we know of ray really at this point is that she is in danger she is damaged she is hurt and it is sort of implied that it is shinji's job to make sure that she is not hurt more so she's already set up kind of uh, at a position of weakness within the narrative. And that adds a really weird flavor to the popularity of the character um, in in the broader Ava and anime fandom that I've always found kind of icky. I think there's a lot of like save the best girl kind of mentality that it's not my favorite thing. You know, I'll just be upfront. I think I, it's I feel the exact same way. And I also think that I don't like that Ray is set up as a damsel in distress. Almost. She's not being held hostage by anything except maybe by Gendo, which is again, he's the primary antagonist of the series in, in, from my perspective. Uh, so she is sort of set up as this sort of like princess peach in the high tower uh, type thing. And I, I don't enjoy that as a, as a storytelling trope at all. Uh, but Evangelion will confound that in some ways, because it, interestingly enough, if there's a secondary antagonist, it's, it might be Ray. It's tricky and we'll get to it as we get to it. But just, I, I can imagine if this is your first time watching Ava, that you probably might be turned off by the way that Ray is presented in this kind of like overly fragile, even in her fragility, kind of like weirdly sexualized uh, state of weakness. Just like bear with it. I swear to God, there's more going on with Ray and it is actually fascinating on its own terms and not on the terms that the fandom sets. I, I agree completely. Um, some ideas for some subtext about about Ray. Uh, so her name is spelled R-E-I. And Ray is a Japanese word that means zero. So the idea is that she's sort of like a, a blank slate. If, if you're familiar with um, other forms of film criticism, you might want to think of the way Slavoj Žižek describes um, the main character in They Live uh, as a blank slate, as, as someone who is not taking part in any particular worldly ideology. Uh, which sort of does confound her as this feminine type character where Ray internally doesn't seem to act with any kind of gender or sexuality herself at all. Uh, it's also worth noting, by the way, that since we brought up World War II earlier, 
uh, Ray or Zero was the name of the uh, primary fighter plane that the Japanese used in World War II. And I, Hideki Anno is a, a military gear nut. And so I think that that subtext is not lost on him at all. Considering the way that Gendo is ready to throw Ray immediately back into harm's way and put her into a combat situation immediately, despite the copious amount of injuries that she's dealing with, the thing that's being implied is that Ray is a tool. She is not acting of her own agency. She is in a situation where she is a tool for that's warfare. absolutely that's absolutely correct. She's also sort of Gendo's other kid, right? And and so she's the foil. Misato will be too later. Almost every character will be later at some point. Spoiler alert. But uh, Ray is immediately the foil for Shinji's neuroses about his dad. Yes. And we will get into that soon. Uh, are there any other big themes that we want to hit from these first two episodes? Uh, there's, a, there's a couple things that I'd like to talk about. Um, so here's something sort of interesting. Uh, in, in the 2019 dub of Evangelion, which is the version that I'm watching now on Netflix. Um, Shinji's voice actor, uh, Casey Mongilio, is a gender non-binary person. And interestingly enough, watching this show, knowing that, I sort of found myself gravitating to the idea of, of Shinji as a, 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 a character who also confounds gender binaries. It, this is something that I would not have considered upon uh, the first time watching the show. I I think that to put it in probably the most balanced way I can, there is definitely there was definitely a conception of the time about Shinji's kind of relationship with masculinity, mainly in the way that he does not live up to any kind of real masculine standards, especially for the main character of what is ostensibly an action series. He doesn't want to get in the robot. He's very bad at piloting it. He is very sensitive. He's uh, a bit whiny. He's a bit petulant at times. Um, he's very reserved into himself in, and not in a hard shell kind of way, but in a like wounded animal sort of way. That's right. So I think that at the time I saw him as, I mean, I felt very similar to Shinji as a, you know, young teenager, you know, as a sensitive kid who instead of, you know, it basically the only difference between me and Shinji at the time is when he's, you know, lying on his bed, listening to music, instead of it being, you know, kind of cheesy melodramatic pop music, I would have been listening to like system of a down, but otherwise, like I immediately recognize Shinji as like, Oh, that's kind of like me. But having talked to you about it, I, I think there's absolutely some real validity to the idea that there's more going on um, with Shinji's gender presentation than simply like a slightly effeminate boy. Well, let me confound that for you because there's a few there's a few interesting things with Shinji and gender. I didn't know this until I started researching for this episode of the podcast. Uh, but Shinji was originally conceived of as a female character. Hmm. He, and but he, Shinji was also originally conceived of as a cipher for the director Hideki Yano. Like he's he's on record said multiple times that Shinji's basically a cipher for his for his feelings as a person. Uh, and initially he wanted it to be a show about a young girl. And once again, Mr. Satamoto, the character designer is the person who pushed against his original idea for the characters and said, uh, you already, uh, did a giant robot series with a fragile young woman as the main character. And that was Gunbuster, which we talked about in the first episode. Uh, and so Satomoto was like, maybe it's time we we did something with a male main character, don't you think? That's fascinating. I was I was unaware of that, but that decision, you know, I I would be interested in seeing the version of the show where Shinji is explicitly a female character, uh, because that would mean it would be a it's already like a majority female cast right. in the show, but and that would tip it even further in that direction. What I will say is that the more psychosexual elements of the show, I think, feel very particular to a, a certain kind of teenage boyhood. But again, maybe this this other read on the character kind of throws that out the window. So who who am I to say anything, really? I'm just going to say this. If they were ever to make 
an Evangelion film, a live action film. And by the way, they've tried, and we'll get to that in a couple episodes because it, it does become relevant. Uh, they've tried and failed a couple times. Uh, but if they were to do that now in 2019, if I were to do it, I might try to write Shinji as a gender non-binary character. Uh, because in a, in a lot of ways, the apocalypse that the series depicts is an apocalypse that destroys binaries. The binaries between God and man, between machine and man, uh, the separations between seasons we talked about earlier. A lot of the tension between the show is this idea of there being hierarchies and set categories of things, and then that these apocalyptic or encroaching forces blur the lines between the categories of things, fantasy and reality. I think it's just to jump in really quickly, and I agree with everything that you said, and I think that's a really fascinating take on the character. I do want to make sure that we mention the religion concept because it comes into play pretty much immediately. So the entire episode we've been talking about the and like the uh, the antagonist of the episode being an angel. Now, obviously, upon looking at it, you can recognize that this is not the sort of hallmark angel idea. This is not your you know bird wings and halo and white robes kind of angel. It's it's throwing some curveballs into your perception of it. And not only that, but the giant explosion at the end of the second episode that destroys the angel and damages the Ava is in the shape of a cross. And this is just another thing that is uh, unique to the show at the time is its reliance and uh, interest in Christian images and phraseology and uh, metaphors. And so it's important to address it now because it's only going to get more intense the deeper in the show we get. To me, this was the hook that Evangelion had that nothing else had that made me need to see it when I was young. And a lot of that is because uh, I was raised a pretty devout Catholic. And around the time the series was coming out was losing my losing my religion and it was a very long and painful process, but it was also like a fascinating process because the less and less that I personally like took stock in Catholicism, the more interested I became in the imagery of Christianity uh, and Christian mysticism, Gnosticism, things like this. And these are all themes that are like deeply woven into the DNA of the show. I what I think makes this interesting is that there is a strain of fandom that views the show purely through the Christian lens. Um, not to say that the show is about Christianity, but that that is the best way to interpret the show is using that uh, symbology. I kind of fall on the outside of that spectrum because I think there's also a case to be made that the Christian imagery is mostly f seasoning over the show itself and that the show isn't solely about the the Christian mythology. Um, this might be something that we butt heads with occasionally, and I'm excited to get into it when there's more to actually address with that. But I would just like to say that I'm kind of more on the side that the Christian imagery is not the primary metaphor in the show. I think it, it plays into it, but it's not the well, only thing. Here, here we go back into the binary, and I'm going to have to take the other stance <laughs> um, because I know that there's a, a strand of Evangelion fandom that that views the, the religious imagery mostly as a red herring. Mm -hmm. And apocryphally, if anyone listening to this could help me find this, I'd love to actually read it. But apocryphally, there's an interview with Hideki Anno where he basically says, I just picked cool images and I'm not Christian, so I thought it was exotic. It doesn't mean anything. And what I really don't like about that take is that that strand of fandom or maybe anti-fandom likes to spin that out into none of it means anything. I certainly would not go that far because my approach to media criticism in general is that while it's useful to know what the creator thinks of uh, what the show means, that is not the exclusive interpretation of the show. At a certain point, it's kind of out of his hands and it's there. It's in the show and there's nothing outside of the text. So sure, he can say that 
that all doesn't mean anything and that's okay. That's one way of looking at it. But there are a lot of people to whom those images and those names and those uh, using that pool of language is going to mean something to a lot of people. And so I can't write all of it off entirely. I just think, I think that that sort of anti-fandom that you're describing um, is almost just more of a reaction to the previous way of interpreting Ava that was maybe too heavy on the Christian symbolism being the key to the show. And it was, it's sort of the pendulum swaying too far the other way. My views would probably be somewhere closer to the middle. I don't view it as the exclusive important thing in the show, but I don't want to discredit that it clearly does mean a lot to a lot of other people. I mean, also, I just don't think that interview exists. Like, I just think that quote is taken out of context because <laughs> I've looked for it. Also, he's kind of a troll. Like, Hideki Anno is, like, notoriously really withholding about what he thinks the show is about. And this is the kind of thing that you can look at, like, a ton of analogs with other creators. It's like, do you want to take David Lynch's word for what all of his movies are about? Like, no, he's going to have these deliberately obtuse answers. Like, if you really want to understand what uh, Mulholland Drive is about, you can't just rely on what David Lynch says about it. You actually have to do the interpretive work yourself. And that's how I feel about Ava as well. So Hideki Anno can say whatever he wants, even if he did or did not say it. you got to still do the interpretive work. And if that means looking at a cross explosion and saying that means something, you're probably right. Clearly, the, the series has issues with authority. It's, it's about a young person, to an extent, who has trouble uh, <laughs> accepting their role in life and, and following orders. And that's part of the patriarchy, which is part of like the previous read, which is a new read that I was talking about. That's part of religion. It's part of politics and government. There is like a, a weird political subtext to this series. And it's also worth noting that... Ano is a political guy, and when he made a Godzilla movie, it's explicitly like a movie that is full of political commentary. So he's a person who thinks about these sort of things and thinks about them in very nuanced ways. And you can, and I'm not, that's not me interpreting it. You can see that in the text, and I'll I'll show you why. I've got a really good example for you. You ready? Go for it. So we're aware that the monsters are called angels, right? Mm -hmm. That's not a translation of the word in Japanese that they use in the dialogue. That's an English loan word. It is an English loan word. The word that they use in the dialogue is Shito, which is best translated as apostle, Aha. Uh, which is religious and sort of makes sense as, as to why like the angels are all numbered. Right. Like there, Jesus had 12 apostles. There are a, a set number of of angels. Right. And so like apostle makes sense as a translation, although it's less provocative. But angel doesn't come. That wasn't a translator choice. Um, Gainax and Hideki Anno want the English word for the monsters to be angels because and you won't see it in this episode. But later on, there's text in English on like computer screens and TV screens in the show that refer to the monsters as angels. Like that's something that he consciously chose. Okay. Yeah. That, I mean, that's indisputable. So if it's a conscious choice, we have to take that choice seriously and consider what it means. I a hundred percent agree. But at, at this point, after the first two episodes, I don't think there's too much to necessarily say about what it means, but it, it is provocative and it is certainly uh, different than any other type of kaiju that uh, fans of mecha anime would have come across previously. It's a really strange and uh, inspired it's super choice. original, but and you can see the the religious themes tying in in ways that are less overt or gaudy, one might say, than the crucifix blasts. Like so, for example, when I was rewatching the series, I I um, fast forwarded through the uh, back and forth through the final fight scene a couple times because in my memory, Unit One delivers the what would be the killing blow to Satchiel with uh, its its hand to hand weapon, the progressive knife. We'll get into the progressive life knife in later episodes. Um, he doesn't use the progressive knife in episode one or two. The weapon that he uses to try and kill Satchiel is its own rib, 
which is a book of Genesis reference. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the religious thing oh isn't isn't bullshit. Like there's there's no way that it's that it's bullshit. Um and the other thing is the reason that people detract try to detract from the series is because uh there's interesting production issues with the series later on and one other like negative interpretation of the series is that they were sort of improving the whole time and the production issues arise from uh, a lack of appropriate planning um this is another way to say that there's no real meaning to it they were just riffing on things right but as i'm re-watching the first episode there's a bunch of stuff that sets up things in previous episodes uh, or in 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 episodes to come that are very deliberately planned and not commented on with dialogue. Mm-hmm. There's, I, I've got a list of some of them if you're interested in, in hearing. Please, yeah, hit me. Uh, so, uh, in the second episode, there's a, a, uh, a lot of scenes where Rutsuko and uh, Misato are speaking uh, inside the the blast radius from when Satchiel self-detonates. They're inside the crater and they're in hazmat suits. Um, while they're doing that, you see cranes moving various uh, objects that it turns out are all the weapons that Unit 1 is going to use in Episode 3. Spoilers. But he has that planned out. Hmm. Um, Ritsuko and Gendo have a conversation in a ruined laboratory with another Evangelion. That Evangelion is Unit Zero. Um, that actually sets up a flashback that's going to take place three episodes in the future. Th- there's there's more stuff too, but I digress. That There's another uh, bit of foreshadowing about that same one. During the elevator ride in the first episode, as they're going up, it's against this sort of dark background. And all of the times that I'd watched this on like shitty YouTube rips and like old grimy mega upload videos, I could never tell what that background was. But thank you, Netflix. The new high def version, you can see that there's a hand pressed up against what appears to be a plane of a pane of glass yeah. behind them. Just just file that away. Just like like keep that in mind. It's there for a reason. I man, if if anyone tries to tell me that this show wasn't planned out in advance, I I don't know what to tell them. I th- I don't think they watched the show. Like this show is so meticulous with how it sets up and pays off information. It just happens that if there's any kind of uh, problem with long-term planning it was with money not with plot not with the show itself that's exactly right that that scene by the way and a few other scenes in this episode set up uh an obsession and a motif that the series has that sort of like bubbles under the surface but um evangelion's obsessed with modes of transportation obsessed all these conversations take place on in trains on elevators and probably the most contentious part of the whole series involves an elevator file that we'll get there like (laughs) we'll get there we could do a whole episode on the fucking elevator uh you get this scene where gendo appears in front of shinji like in the elevator and they don't talk and the elevator closes and he goes again uh misato's obsessed with cars she drives her car onto a train that goes into the underground. I, I'm not entirely certain what I feel about like the transportation motif, but it's like it's undeniable, like a conscious choice. Hidekiano has some sort of hang up with the metaphor about modes of transportation. Yeah, yeah, that's that is definitely a good uh, visual reference to, to keep in mind, because you're right, like the trains, especially it's just it's constant. It's it like the show is all especially the second half of the show. There's like multiple scenes on end that are just entirely take place on trains. Uh, I don't really know what that means right now. It's I think the Masato car obsession thing. And you can actually there's a lot of like little little subtle character building details. Like the more that you see of her apartment, the more that there's just car magazines right. and stuff like that. Just scatter around all the time. It's always there. And just to kind of like go back to big picture things that we bring up all of these really small things that appear very small now and are sort of alluding to how important they are to train you to look at the show seriously and to consider 
what decision making is going on because the show gives more the more that you're willing to give to it. The more that you trust the show, the more it's going to give back to you. So all that I'm trying to do right now is like provide you with like tools to use as you keep watching the show to pick a part of it so it can be a more like a richer experience going forward and tools to give you something to focus on because this series does not lend itself to things making logical sense the more the more that it goes on like the this is a television show that confounds traditional storytelling tropes like a defined beginning middle and end like we're going to have a huge time jump in the middle of the climactic scene right after a cliffhanger and make it work. However, one thing that is going to be relatively conventional is this podcast, meaning that you can find us on the usual services that you can find podcasts. You can uh, reach out to us via social media. You can contact us personally. If you have any notes about the show, any feedback, please like and subscribe, all the usual mumbo jumbo. And in the next episode... We will be back to discuss the next two episodes of Evangelion. That is episodes three and four. That's correct. Thank you very much for having this conversation with me, Ian. Happy to have it. And I promise next time there will be more fan service. <laughs> See ya. Thank you for listening. If you liked the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you want to share your thoughts on the show or about anything really, email us at humaninstrumentalitypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at anotheravapod and on Instagram at humaninstrumentalitypod. Extra special thanks to Kira Anderson for the graphics and web design. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>